Do I still have to redact it, even though you guys are on record? It's called TSFCI. I think I'm a little nicer in real life than I am on Twitter. It's not hard. Feminist like mileage accounts. to Unredacted from the DSR Network. We're here with Shannon Watts. Uh, Shannon, we want to thank you. You've had a very busy week, obviously. Um, we're in the wake of yet another mass shooting. Uh, for those of you who do not know Shannon, she is the founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. She's the mother of five, and before the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012, she was a stay-at-home mom and was a communications consultant. But Sandy Hook uh, hit her in a way that she just had to jump into action, and uh, you started a Facebook group. And for what I read somewhere, you only had about 75 <laughs> Facebook friends, and then that exploded into a grassroots movement that uh, became something that has a chapter in every state of the country and is part of the Everytown for Gun Safety uh, preventive organization, which has more than 5 million supporters. You are out with your first book, Fight Like a Mother, I think that's a play on words, um, <laughs> but this is a family-friendly podcast, so I'll leave that to the imagination. And you've been described as the NRA's worst enemy, which means that you are Unredacted's best friend. Thank you. And we particularly want to thank you for joining us on National Gun Violence Awareness Day. And for anyone who couldn't figure out why they were seeing people wearing orange uh, last week, it was because uh, of, of this effort to bring attention. Um, thought we'd start with you telling us about the book, which you described as part memoir, part manual, part manifesto. Um, that seems like it covers the waterfront. <laughs> and if you could, it's a great way of telling us a little about yourself and also yeah. the transition from what you were doing before December 14, 2012. Yes. And uh, what changed on that day? So I had a history in corporate communications, and then I was a stay-at-home mom for about five years. I was living in Indiana at the time. And this book talks about how I started Moms Demand Action, really the impact of becoming an accidental activist, and how that's impacted my family, my life. I never imagined I would be the tip of the spear for an issue that can be so incredibly volatile. Uh, it is part manual in that... I talk about how we did this. How did we build this grassroots movement that's now not only the largest gun violence prevention movement in the country, but the largest grassroots organization? I get so many calls from women and mothers who say, how did you do this? We want to do something like this on any issue in my neighborhood or my community. And then the manifesto part is really about how we are showing women in particular, women and moms, that they can take the skills they learn as activists and move from not just shaping policy, but making it. And um, can you put a little bit into context? Because I, I was surprised um, after the Vegas shooting in Parkland, did a little bit more research on the NRA than I had previously understood. They're a lot smaller than one would think based on their incredible impact you know, their dominance in stopping really any kind of uh, practical resolution. C can you tell us, just roughly outline to us, gun ownership, people who are in the NRA, other groups? 
The NRA has had dwindling men- membership for a long time, and in part because the demographic that they sell guns to is aging out. It's typically a white man over the age of 50 or 60. And that's why we saw them reverse so many of their positions in the early 2000s. Before that, they had supported a background check on every gun sale. They opposed guns in schools. But then suddenly they realized they were selling more guns to fewer people. They had convinced a very small part of that segment that was buying guns that they needed an arsenal. And so how do you sell more guns to more people? Well, you pass laws that force guns onto college campuses. You arm teachers. You pass something called permitless carry. You pass stand your ground laws. You really put forward an agenda that is guns for anyone, anywhere, anytime, no questions asked. And that was what they were working to do. Uh, And then Moms Demand Action happened. And we have really gone toe-to-toe with them. And part of that is to shine a light under the refrigerator and force the cockroaches to run out. (laughs) And so we've showed how incredibly dangerous their agenda is to lawmakers and Americans alike. And as a result, um, they have been struggling also because they're under investigation for their ties to Russia, for the way they're spending their members' money. Um, And if you look at the midterm elections, we outspent and outmaneuvered them. So their membership is dwindling, their their power is waning, and we are stronger than we've ever been. So going into 2020, we're feeling pretty good. Well, speaking of 2020, uh, I saw that you did uh, an event with Eric Swalwell um, with veterans at a gun range. Yes. And um, you're not backing anyone in 2020, but you've sent them all a questionnaire. I'm curious, what are you looking for from the field? What do you think? What are the specific uh, either policies that you've proposed or others that you want to see how they and how are they breaking down into pro and con? Like not not asking to criticize or pat anyone on the back, but curious where the fault lines are by position. So we started a gun sense candidate questionnaire back in 2018. And we thought, okay, we will start this program and maybe we'll get a couple hundred responses. Because we have this grassroots army of volunteers, they made sure that so many thousands of candidates had access to this questionnaire. As a result, we gave out over 3,000 of these gun sense candidate distinctions, Republicans and Democrats alike. Now that we're going into the 2020 presidential election, we have just given these questionnaires out to the candidates. And we're really interested in hearing what they have to say, not only whether they support stronger gun laws, gun safety, but are they prioritizing this in their policy platform? Are there innovative ways that they would tackle it based on their background, based on their experience? So I'm really excited about getting these questionnaires back and then being able to sort of contrast and compare. Do you get the sense that they are taking it seriously or that they are... I mean, again, we're a week away from the last uh, latest mass shooting. Unfortunately, I think we could probably assume sometime in the next 17 months before the election there will be another or there will be something that will call into question what the hell we're doing about guns. Do you think that it's prioritized enough? I think the fact that every single candidate, including the Republican who is who is primarying the president, Bill Weld, every single one of them support gun safety. In fact, they're competing to see who can be the best on this issue. That is a sea change in American politics. And much of it is because Hillary Clinton prioritized this in her policy platform. She traveled with Mothers of the Movement, Lucy McBath, my former fellow colleague, current congresswoman, uh, was a part of that Mothers of the Movement. And 
the reason that Hillary Clinton made this part of her campaign was because American constituents overwhelmingly support it. And all of the work that we've done as an organization has also helped show candidates and lawmakers that if you do the right thing, we'll have your back. And if you do the wrong thing, we'll have your job. <laughs> and I think that's why we see every candidate being so strong. I just got the chills. You <laughs> I think if you say it to them, looking at them the way you just said oh, it to me. Oh, trust me. Women in red shirts <laughs> show up in state houses and say that every day. And and they mean business. Well, it was a very sobering, you know, we're also in the week, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And there have been very sobering comparisons to the death toll on D-Day. I think it was just over 2,500 Americans and just over 4,400 of all allied forces. And gun deaths in America reached 2,500 by March. Yes. And it reached 4,400 by April. And obviously, this is these are apples and oranges. But that is a very sobering way to think about it. And the day that it passed the 2,500 number in March, 29 people were killed. I mean, that is these numbers are are staggering. And how do they not wake people up? Well, there are two different camps of people. So when we look at data, we know that about 74% of NRA members actually support common sense gun laws like a background check on every gun sale. Uh, 80% of gun owners feel the same way. Only one in 10 of every gun owner in this country even belongs to the NRA. It's a very small portion. So this isn't about gun owners or the membership of the NRA. When you're talking about this very vocal minority, it's made up of gun extremists who the gun lobby is convinced that any kind of law at all is an infringement on the Second Amendment and is a slippery slope to either eradicating the Second Amendment or confiscating their guns. Obviously, that is not a real fear or concern, but it's something that they believe. And we don't have to spend a lot of time convincing those people, given that 90 percent of Americans support stronger gun laws. And what do you think the, the members of Congress, the Republicans who are against or who are roadblocks to any kind of common sense changes, how how many of them is it because they represent a legitimately red or rural area that has uh, high gun use, you know, what we would call common sense gun use or even themselves, as opposed to how many Republicans are there in California or New York who are doing it because the NRA is all over them? We are seeing fewer and fewer Americans vote against the public on this. They're, they're not necessarily voting with the gun lobby. The bigger issue is why are lawmakers still, some of them, beholden to the NRA? And that's because they've built up a base of power over decades. It's because they've played in elections. It's because they've gone against lawmakers who haven't voted with them on certain things. Uh, if you look at the Manchin-Toomey bill, which was uh, a bipartisan bill to close a background check loophole that Congress attempted to, or the president attempted to pass in the wake of Sandy Hook in April of 2013, it lost by just a handful of votes in the Senate. Some of those votes were by Democratic senators. Not a single one of those senators still holds their job. Heidi Heitkamp was the last one to lose her job. And I can remember she said after that vote, that she voted against Manchin Toomey because she heard more from the other side, meaning gun extremists. And we vowed that that would never happen again, that lawmakers could still have all the data and know the constituent polling showed that they could vote for it safely and vote against it because they made that choice. But they would never be able to say it again because they hadn't heard enough from the other side. So 
I want to ask you uh, again. It was December fourteenth, twenty twelve, when there was Sandy Hook massacre and twenty children lost their lives. Can you describe what it was like that day? And then I'm curious what it was like watching Virginia Beach. Like, what is the first thing when you watch something like that unfold? Um, you had mentioned before about Republicans who are they're trying to push everyone to have a gun. School teachers, there are people that said everyone in that municipal building should have a gun. And I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is obviously we were all just emotionally floored by Sandy Hook. But now that you are so steeped in it, did you – when you see Virginia Beach and you start hearing Republicans, you just start yelling at the TV? <laughs> Well, I spent a lot of the weekend fighting with Chris Cuomo on Twitter, um, mainly because I, I get so disappointed when I see pundits and politicians in the aftermath of a horrific shooting tragedy saying that this is hopeless or being cynical about our ability to change this dynamic. First of all, it's dangerous. It implies that Americans can't do anything in response and, and tells them they shouldn't even try. But the other piece of it is that it's not true. It erases the hard work of all the women, and particularly women of color, on the ground who have been fighting so hard to make real gains, particularly since Sandy Hook. If you look at our track record in state houses and in boardrooms, we're clearly winning. And this issue is not won in Congress first. That's where it ends. We have to go into communities and states and change policies and laws and culture. And that momentum will point the president and the Congress in the right direction. That's how social issues work in this country. You just mentioned boardrooms, and there was something I thought very interesting this week about Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce is now telling its clients that if they don't shape up in terms of, I guess, how they sell or whether they sell military-grade rifles, and I'm I'm blanking on what uh, retail chain, that they're going to kick them off Salesforce. And that's a really interesting... I wonder how much uh, of this, how much time and effort you spend on corporate America as uh, to encourage them or help them be good citizens. And there was a term that I saw someone use, of course, on the right that said uh, there's no place for boardroom legislation (laughs) by people who are not elected. So when you look at the levers of power that women have to pull, because we're only 20 percent of lawmakers in this country, because we're only about 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs, uh, we have to pull the levers we can. And that includes our votes, because we're the majority of the voting electorate. It also includes our spending power. We make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families. And getting companies involved was important to us from the very beginning. Uh, Starbucks in June of 2013 said they would no longer allow smoking outside its stores, 20 feet outside its stores. And we called to see if they were still allow open carry, which we'd seen that in Starbucks across the country. It's a le- it's legal in 40, 45 states. And they said, yes, we were still gonna, they were still going to follow the laws as it pertained to guns. So we embarked on what we called a mob cot and said um, we used this hashtag skip Starbucks Saturdays and made pictures of what open carry inside the stores looked like. We made them go viral. As a result, within three months, Howard Schultz, the CEO, came out and said, guns are no longer welcome inside our stores. And that showed us that we could, we could win. Now, we were, kick, we were bringing these companies into the issue, kicking and screaming. They did not want to talk about guns. 
flash forward six years and companies are coming to us and saying, how do we get involved? Not just how do we change our own policies, but how do we get involved and be part of the coalition that will pass stronger gun laws at a state and federal level? Levi's, Tom's, Dick's Sporting Goods, all of these companies are very influential and they're very much behind this issue. Emily, I know you had some more personal questions for Shannon. Why don't you go ahead? First, thank you for everything you're doing. I cannot thank you enough, and I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of so many. This week was so hard, I think, for so many of us. For me, I was born in Virginia Beach, and then I have three nieces and a nephew who just mean the world to me, and this is their reality day to day. And it just, it breaks my heart. And so I reached out to my niece who is, she's she's very active and feisty and I love it. And I said, you know, I'm going to be talking to Shannon and she knew exactly who you were. And I said, what's going on? And she said, oh, weird that you texted me today. Uh, Maddie's school, who's younger, their middle school had a lockdown. There was a gun scare, miscommunication. Kids were running outside. Kids were screaming, crying, huddling in place. They didn't know what to do. And I just asked, you know, her, I said, you know, how's everybody doing? And she said, can you just ask Shannon, what can kids do? She said that they feel absolutely powerless. She said they didn't know what to do. And they felt like they had a voice and they wanted to make their voice heard. And they saw what the Parkland kids are doing. And that seems so big to them. And so I didn't know if you had any advice that I could share with her and she could listen to and, and share with her, with her, you know, her fellow, you know, students and, you know, kids in her school. Yeah. So first of all, I'm sorry. That's absolutely horrible. And it's a bizarre reality that we deal with in America that we seem to be under constant threat of active shooter drills or real threats of shootings. And it's the only high income country in the world um, that has allowed this to continue. And the laws that we're looking to pass certainly would make a change. It would keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. But in the meantime, Um, This is a reality that students deal with. And that's why we have an organization called Students Demand Action, which is modeled after Moms Demand Action. Um, And people can join simply by texting students to 64433. Um, But for young kids, you know, they are certainly welcome um, to come to Moms Demand Action meetings with their parents and, and frequently do. Because the younger generation, you know, we they're going to be angry if they're not already. The fact that we treat these shooting drills or shootings as acts of nature instead of man-made acts of cowardice, which is what they are. Um, Our lawmakers could make this stop, and they're choosing not to right now. So we need everyone in every generation to join this movement and to use their voices, and if they can't vote, um, to pull the other levers of power that they do have available to them. Can, should they start writing to their local representatives? Should you know what? What are the other things that they can do so they feel like they're getting the power back? Yeah. Again, Moms Demand Action volunteers are on the ground, showing up with um, their children, and they're meeting with their school officials and with lawmakers and at PTA meetings and talking about these issues all the time. And there's no reason that kids can't come too. Um, But they should also be a part of what's happening in their schools and have conversations with those school officials about threat assessments and lockdown drills. You know, some of these lockdown drills are so over the top. In Indiana, they're trying to pass legislation that would allow um, 
rubber bullets to be fired at the teachers so they feel the adrenaline of what a mass shooting feels like. You know, these are these are male lawmakers making decisions for teachers who are mostly women. So I think anything that Moms Demand Action does, younger kids can get involved in that and, and do the same things. Um, but for kids who are in high school and college, they should join Students Demand Action. Talking to them, they said, you know, should we be scared? Should we be angry? Because they're they're pissed and they just feel obviously helpless. And Yeah, I mean, I would say no one is too young to be an activist and they should be angry um, and they should get involved as soon as they can because the more people who show up, for example, at, at gun bill hearings or at city council meetings or at PTA meetings, um, it's wonderful to have broad coalitions that don't just include moms. Uh, we always try to include law enforcement and the medical community and educators. And I think that that bringing children and having them use their voice at those meetings is just as important. You had mentioned law enforcement, so I wanted to get your your perspective and your take on Scott Peterson. Obviously, it's, I think, one of the first times law enforcement has been, you know, held account to his, you know, to his inaction and wanted to get your take on it and what your thoughts were. I mean, the victims' families have all lined up in support of his arrest. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen the, the families on both sides of the political spectrum. And, and on this, they are all aligned that he was derelict in his duties and that he should be held accountable. Not talking about that case specifically, but looking more broadly, you know, what do we expect of school resource officers? Do we expect them to break up fights in our schools? Or do we expect them to go in and take on uh, people we've given access to semi-automatic rifles, tactical gear, bulk ammo, etc.? cetera? Um, is that part of the job description? It seems that you would be outmanned. And so I, I think that's something else we have to be thinking about as well. Yeah, I think that everything is so, it's changing so quickly. And obviously the situations have changed so quickly. I don't I don't know if they know what the roles are and they're trying to define it. And it's, and unfortunately, then so many people suffer because of it. Molly, I know you wanted to, you had a couple of questions as well. And I want to make sure you have time. Hi. Hi, Molly. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Um, I, I am so glad to get to talk to you. It's really great. And um, I, wa- I had some questions for you because you have that same relationship with the NRA that I have with, like, all conservatives. So, <laughs> except Rick I Wilson. You guys are friends. Except, oh, I love Rick Wilson. <laughs> but, um, I, but I wanted to know what, like, what is it like? Do you fear for your safety? Can you talk about this a little bit? Are you not supposed to talk about yeah, it? Yeah, no, that's fine. Can you talk about it in a big way? Yeah. So immediately after starting Moms Demand Action, I started getting threats of death, sexual violence to me and to my daughters, um, really within hours of starting it. And there was this underbelly of America that I didn't know existed. And that has continued. Um, it's really become like white noise. I know that it's in, it's meant to intimidate and silence me. So I have grown to tune it out. Um, but I would say in the last couple of weeks, the NRA, um, to divert from the distraction of all the investigations they have going on, have gone after me very personally, very specifically, with the intention of sending threats my way. Um, Thankfully, they also helped boost my book sales, so (laughs) very grateful to them. Uh, But 
the fact that they are frightened by me and by my organization enough to constantly attack us shows that what we're doing is effective and that we're winning. Can can you talk a little bit about what was it like to see the NRA just implode <laughs> with this Ollie Nor stuff? I mean, you must have been you've been working on this since 2012. You must have I mean, it must have been totally. Did you have an inkling? Were you oh, yeah. completely shocked? No, we've been watching this play out. You know, uh, we've always said our job as moms is to shine a, flight, a light under the refrigerator and force the cockroaches to run out. And so we've been talking about how insidious the NRA has been at the state and federal level, all of the things they've tried to get by on the down low, um, the shady business practices, uh, for example, their carry guard insurance, which has fallen onto very hard times. It was supposed to be a Can cash cow for the what or- that is? So carry guard was what some people call murder insurance. It was basically if you shot someone um, that was supposedly in, in defense, uh, that it would cover any kind of legal costs. Um, it covered actually cleanup costs, which is disturbing. It seems insane. Yes, it, it seems very American. And that hit many regulatory battles. And as a result, it's not going to be the cash cow they'd hoped for. So we were just watching all of these things play out, sharing it, highlighting it. Um, and so the fact that all of this kind of played out at the NRA's annual board meeting was fascinating to watch. It's kind of like a soap opera. But I would never count the NRA down and out. You know, they 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 were struggling and had hard times in the 90s, too. I think they're probably just waiting for a, a Democratic Congress or president that will, again, be a boogeyman uh, that they can use to scare gun owners whenever there's a, a mass shooting that they need to, to buy an arsenal. But in the meantime, you know, they go into 2020 in a very weakened position. That's very interesting. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Michael Bloomberg? Yeah, about a year into working on Moms Demand Action, um, helping grow it with all these other women across the country, I realized that, uh, you know, we we needed financial human resources to really make this work into perpetuity. We were incredibly successful the first year. We, we raised a significant amount of money, but we needed to take that next step to make sure that this was sustainable. And I interviewed a lot of different organizations inside and outside the space. And ultimately, it was Mike Bloomberg's team that had the exact same vision that we did, which was do this work in the States, do it in boardrooms, uh, create and change the culture of gun violence, um, and and that that eventually would move the federal lawmakers in the right direction. And and that's what we've been working on now together for the last six years. That's so interesting. And he seems so great. The, um, the other thing I was going to say, I was so curious about, so I went to this party for your book, and I saw there that you are very close with lots of gun violence survivors. Can you talk a little bit about what that is like and how you, I mean, I know how you got involved with them, but like the bond you've formed with these women and just a little bit about that kind of stuff? Because I'm so interested in the culture of, it seems like there's a lot of cool sort of self-helpy stuff going on there. Yeah, it's 
to have gun violence survivors so involved in this and part of the coalitions when we go and talk to lawmakers and to influencers and to business leaders is incredibly powerful and important to show how this crisis in this country affects the actual lives of Americans. And it's not just data and statistics. It's also the human side of this that's so compelling and important. And so we work very closely. We have a, a survivor network. Um, and, you know, I am lucky enough to work side by side with these people who are so incredibly committed, even after all they've been through, to turn that pain into action that will save the lives of perfect strangers and prevent other families from experiencing what they have. That's so cool. I mean, I, I'm so, it's just every time I see you, you're just a huge inspiration to oh, me. So it's you. very cool. Did you, can you just tell a little more about the book? Um, what, how had you, you know, can you talk to me about this? Were you freaked out by having to write it? Where mm-hmm. did you, how do you get, how do you decide to do it? And, um, and it's, did you find it? I mean, I find writing, all writing torturous. So I'm curious <laughs> to know what you your experience with that. So a, a, an agent reached out to me in January of 2018 and said, you know, we've been following you. We have some of your volunteers in our office. And this just would make an amazing story if you told how did this happen and how have you won and how did women do this? And so we started working together. And then the Parkland tragedy happened in February. And I was busier than I think I've ever been in my life with just helping to absorb all of the Americans who decided they want to get involved in this issue. You know, we tripled in size. And then we started working on the marches that were going to happen. And uh, I was fortunate to find someone who could help me co-write. And we each took chapters and then sent them back and forth for months to make sure they were in my voice. Um, It was very helpful to have someone help me remember all that had happened (laughs) in the last six years because it's easy to lose track of uh, and just have to pull even emails, you know, from the very earliest days and and remember the story of how we started. Uh, And we wrote the book until October. And then since then, we've just been editing it and finalizing it. But there were certainly days when writing was torturous. You know, it's you want to spend so much time and energy on it and you've got this other full-time job. But I was really thrilled with the the final product. It's so, it's so fascinating. Um, do you guys have other questions? Yeah, if you're done, I was going to come back to a couple yeah. of things. So I, on the topic of the book, I was hoping to come in with my copy. Uh, I wanted to go back to the NRA for one question. I was going to, I'm not going to ask you if you were surprised by what has come out, the revelations about the NRA and very strange Russia connections, but what do you make of them? The, the, just the this overlap between the NRA and various nefarious mm. <laughs> uh, I'm blanking on her name, Maria. Maria Butina. Yes. Um, it's just not surprised that, that an organization like the NRA would stoop to that level, but it's strange. Well, and it looked like it started, you know, several years ago that Maria Butina and her colleagues in the Kremlin were hell-bent on infiltrating the highest levels of the NRA. And there must be reasons for that, either you know that they were vulnerable or that they were interested in um, having their support. And that's why we need to understand, you know, where did these tens of millions of dollars that the NRA suddenly had in the 2018 elections come from? Uh, 
they don't have to report a lot of that, but certainly Congress can get to the bottom of it. And when you see the, the NRA's inability to sell more guns to more people, um, I can only assume that they became desperate. That's interesting. Um, so you do a lot of TV. Uh, I don't do anywhere near as much as you do, but I tend to do more Fox than I should. And what always amazes me after a gun incident is, boy, do they have an excuse for everything. Their favorite is, well, nothing would have mattered. Their second is everyone should have a gun. Teachers, municipal workers, everybody should have a gun. And um, the first one cracks me up because they've never tried anything, so I'm not exactly uh, sure how they'd say nothing works. But I'm curious, what? unfortunately, we all can't articulate uh, a pushback to those as well as you can. Can you give us a couple of quick, when someone says to you, if I were an NRA member or wackadoo right winger who says nothing would have made a difference, uh, the Parkland shooter, the Vegas shooter, they would have had their AR-15 and you couldn't have done anything about it. What, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, every high income country, every nation is home to people who are unstable, to people who are misogynists or racists or bigots. They all struggle with that in their countries. Only America gives those people easy access to arsenals and ammunition. And that's why you are 25 times more likely to be murdered with a gun in America than any of our peer nations. So clearly, <laughs> it is easy access to guns. But again, back to my argument with Chris Cuomo, you know, this weekend he said, name one law that would have stopped this. Well, you can't name one law that would reduce traffic fatalities. When we were able to, as a country, diminish the amount of people who were dying in car accidents, we did it through a variety of ways. We had rumble strips. We had a seatbelt law. We had cars were made in a more safe manner. Um, we had speed limits. We had drunk driving laws. All of these things together reduced the amount of traffic deaths. We haven't even tried trying with gun safety. We have in some states but as a country, we have done very little at the federal level. So if you look at Virginia Beach, there are some specific things. Virginia does not require um, limiting magazine capacity. Uh, there were silencers involved. Um, there may have been some red flags with this person. He may have been violent with his colleagues, and Virginia doesn't have a red flag law. So when you look at states that have stronger gun laws, you see fewer gun deaths. When you see states that have weaker gun laws, they have more gun deaths. It's pretty intuitive. It's very obvious. It's like climate change. The data is in, uh, but we need lawmakers to use that data to make laws. Well, and like climate change, they don't accept data <laughs> as data. One state, I think, I don't, I don't know if you'd, how you'd rank them, but after Sandy Hook, Connecticut has actually enacted a number of laws yes. that has really brought down. Are you surprised that other states have or haven't followed their model? Well, last year, after the Parkland tragedy, you know, we tripled in size and we were able to parlay that newfound growth into political wins. And we passed stronger gun laws in 20 states, nine of which were signed by Republican governors. Um, in the states, this is less of a partisan issue. We're seeing more and more Republicans support things like a red flag law. Um, before the Parkland tragedy, five states had red flag laws. Now we have 15 states that have them, and there are two more on the desks of governors in Hawaii and Nevada. So 
we're starting to see that shift where lawmakers are seeing that they work and, and it's our job as gun safety activists to give them the data that shows which laws work and why. Uh, you mentioned silencers and this will be the last question before we let you go. Uh, on silencers, um, it's a really easy common sense question. What the hell does someone need a silencer for that's not a bad intent? And I, uh, all three of us uh, were on Twitter last weekend, and there was one person, and God knows if it's a person, a troll, a machine, but their argument was um, if they were, if their home were invaded and they had a legal firearm and they had to defend themselves and their family, they would not want to hurt anyone's eardrums. Do yeah. people? <laughs> I'll give a creativity points, but I imagine when you meet with lawmakers that they say some crazy stuff or that their arguments are pretty weak. So what do you say to someone or what do you make them say to you when they argue that silencer should be legal? Like how does someone rationalize that and how do you prevent them from getting away with that rationalization? Well, it isn't just about making them legal. The NRA actually tried to deregulate silencers um, and we were able to play good defense and stop them from doing that, even with a Republican president and Republican Congress. But you would have been able to get a silencer without a background check at, in those states that don't require them unlicensed or unlicensed sales. Um, so the NRA sees silencers as a cash cow. They're about $100 million in the hole right now, gun manufacturers are, because they don't have someone in the White House to make people afraid every time there's a mass shooting. Uh, and, and this is one way to get some of that cash back. We do not support silencers. They do not belong on the streets. They muffle the sound of gunshots by about 25 to 35 decibels. Uh, if you heard some of the survivors talking after the shooting, um, they specifically said they would have run or they thought that silencers made it more deadly. Some thought it was a nail gun. Some thought the shots were coming from outside. That's the purpose of a silencer, to not make them totally silent, but certainly to muffle the noise, distort it. And there, there is no good reason for having a silencer. You look at the military. Um, they use ear safety equipment. They don't use silencers. So to say they need to be in the hands of civilians is really a gun lobby talking point. Well, to finish on that note, uh, the idea that the NRA thinks that they can intimidate or silence you <laughs> seems to be way off base. I don't know. They can try, but clearly they're failing. That, that won't happen. <laughs> Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. want to wish you the best with the book. Um, I would say hope to see you more on TV, but in a way I don't because when you're on TV, usually it's an indication that something – Hopefully I'll be on there talking about my book. That would be great. <laughs> um, and we very much encourage everyone to buy. We want to uh, make sure you have your Twitter handles right. So it's at Mom's Demand. Yep. And it's at Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-R, Watts, W-A-T-T-S. Yep. Are you at liberty to tell us what the R stands for? Um, you don't have to. No, I'm trying to think of something really clever, but it's Renee. <laughs> Renee, that's great. That was clever. Shannon, thank you so much for making time for us. That was really thank great. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thanks thank all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Unredacted from the DSR Network. We hope you enjoyed our episode, and we very much hope you will tune in to our next episode.